This podcast is brought to you by All Things Film. <coughs> no, it, it really is. All Things Film, the web's premier collection of independent movie and TV related podcasts. For more, check out www.allthingsfilm.co.uk or search All Things Film on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn Radio. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Taiwan Noir 16 on Night Orchid and the Greatest Plot. And because we had fun discussing colorful Wuxiapian last time when we reviewed The Ghost Hill, among other things, we jump ahead a decade to Night Orchid by Chang Peng Yi, starring Adam Chang and Bridget Lin. Uh, will it be memorable color for the genre? Well, well, we'll see in our review. And also, we... We get very sparse feedback, uh, regardless of the show on this network, uh, but when a listener puts forth a request towards Taiwan Noir, which is a specialized niche show, anyway, we listen, you know, intensely. And uh, Andrew from California wrote in and told us of a movie that kind of scared him as a child through um, various surreal scenes and spooky sound design and eerie music, in his own words, but largely... We're dealing with a kung fu movie here in our in our second half, and uh, hopefully it will have the greatest plot in, of all mankind. But regardless, <laughs> it's called the greatest plot from 1977, directed by Ulysses Ao, aka Tsai Yang Ming, whose movie The Country of Beauties we've covered on this show to give you a little bit of perspective already. So that's the two movies. My name is Kenny B, and with me is Todd Statman. Say hello, buddy. Hello, Taiwan noir listeners. At least we have one, Andrew, in California. Hello, Andrew. Yes, hello, Andrew. Friend for life. Someone liked what I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but that, it, it is kind of cool. I mean, I, I don't expect it to happen often, and it's certainly nothing we ever get. Like, why don't you uh, review that movie? Because it, we across the network, we are kind of specialized, and we pl- plow our own path. But uh, I've, nev- I've never seen The Greatest Plot, so that was like a good experiment for us for once that we both went into this cold. Yeah, I mean, once again, I've never... I I think my knowledge of Taiwanese movies was exhausted about halfway through us doing this podcast, because I think the last this is the second uh, episode we've done where I had not heard of either of these movies until you had mentioned them to me. So I'm in, I'm in uncharted territory here. It's exciting. Cool, very cool. Uh, we'll get it. We'll get into it and uh, do some contact information and chat before the movie. So this is Taiwan War at the Podcast on Fire Network. We are on podcastonfire.com. You can find this show, all the other shows, and bonus episodes on there. Perhaps one day we'll find a suitable uh, um, movie or content to um, to warrant a bonus episode. We'll see about that. I have some ideas, but uh, we'll uh, we'll keep that for off air. If you have any suggestions, uh, listener requests, or just uh, feedback in general, email us at podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Like our page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash network. Uh, every tenth like generates a bit of charity. It's a 
minor little program I've been running, and it's been working in terms of the page has increased in likes, and therefore various, uh, you know, $10 here, £10 here has gone towards a charity. So it's a win-win situation for everyone. And uh, we also uh, provide updates on that page and chat, but main updates and main chat feed, if you will, occurs in the discussion group. Reach that through the link on the page I said, or type in Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search bar. And I write about Taiwanese movies, I write about category-free movies, and also Todd's favorite <laughs> production house outlet in the world. I write about <laughs> IFP and Richard yeah. Harrison and the ninja exploitation, you know, and exploitation of humans in general. I... And Garfield phone exploitation. Mm, yeah. Um, Jim Davis and Paul Sink never, to my knowledge, minded any usage of it. I mean, it even turns up in the Stephen Chow movie, Love on Delivery, he, he appears as this masked kind of Avenger superhero, mm. and he has a Garfield mask on, you know. <laughs> and, and it's not like they tweak the design or anything. It's Garfield. And, and, uh, but Paws Inc. seemingly are still, you know, they're, they're not on the streets, like, begging for money to complete the next day's comic strip, you know. Right. Uh, yes. So they're, 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 they're solid, but uh, it's exploitation, not by IFT, but Hong Kong cinema in general. Garfield... You know, Gafe is uh, is uh, solid stuff. You know, they'll get bumps in seats. You know, put Garfield in there, man. Oh yeah, anything just add Garfield and it's money. I don't mind. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the comic strip. Huge fan of the comic strip. Well, maybe we should work Garfield in more of our podcasts somehow. I don't know. Maybe make him the mascot of the pod of the podcast. You know, he never turns up in Taiwanese cinema. So this mm. podcast, it's kind of out of this podcast. They could work on Podcast on Fire and certainly on the Golden Ninja podcast that me and Eddie Glazer do. So mm-hmm. something to think of, like an oral mascot, you know, A-U-R-A-L. <laughs> so how are you doing in there? How are you doing there, Garfield? And all he can do is he can't talk, obviously. So so someone has to edit in like uh, what, Lorenzo Music's uh, thoughts, like we, we'll sample the cartoon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's time to check in with Garfield. And and then that droll, wonderful voice of Lorenzo. I think that was the guy's name, a voice Garfield, Lorenzo Music. I think so, anyway. Wow, I didn't know you were such a Garfield expert. I love Garfield. I love. I'm oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm watching the um, cartoon again, Garfield and Friends on 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 Netflix. Uh, not not extremely good, but they they got the vibe down pretty well occasionally, especially through that voice. So yeah, there you go. Uh, I write about. Pretty much all that stuff, including Garfield, on SoGoodReviews.com. <laughs> and do little spoken video reviews, uh, spoken uh, audio commentaries on uh, movies I review on SleazyKVideo.com. And I tweet at Twitter.com forward slash SoGoodReviews. If you're an iTunes user, we won't do uh, what you too did and force Taiwan Noir <laughs> on you and put Taiwan Noir in your cloud. We won't do that. There is the option to subscribe to us, so, so please, please do if you're an iTunes user and want the podcast delivered to you when it is released. And if you like the show, please rate and, uh, and even leave a small written comment if you did like the show or even if you disliked it. Uh, so thank you very much for that. And finally, you can stream us on Stitcher Radio through their website, but also through their application available to your iPhone, iPad, or Android. And uh, finally, from my side, uh, Stitcher was the next to last plug, but finally, from my side, Golden Ninja Warrior Chronicles blog, run by Jesus Perez Molina, specifically will link to his Taiwanese black movies posts. He occasionally writes about 
the Taiwanese movies that were used in various IFD and Filmark movies, and that's research that is very good to have because uh, finally there is we're living in an era where some of these source movies from Taiwan are identified finally uh, the ones that uh, IFD and Filmark used. So uh, check that out. So that's my plugs. You have a variety of uh, plugs, but uh, I think listeners and certainly I would like to hear what's been going on in the world of funky Bollywood, my friend. Funky Bollywood. Yes. Uh, uh, I did want to say that I think you're actually coming up on me in terms of your number of plugs. You've got quite a bit going now. I'm Um, a competitive guy, man. (laughs) I'm going to try and continue on despite your mention of the U2 iTunes debacle because now I'm like overcome with white hot rage, but I'll (laughs) try and get over that. Attentive listeners to Taiwan Noir might have noticed uh, that I have mentioned in the past a book that I wrote and that is to be published uh, soon uh, called Funky Bollywood, a book about the Indian action movies of the 70s. If you are an attentive listener, you also might have noticed that at one point I claimed that it was going to be released in September. And you have probably since noticed that September came and went without mention of it, and it indeed did not come out. There is a reason for that, and it actually is a very good reason. The book, uh, which was I originally was going to self-publish through Amazon, was picked up by uh, Fab Press in England, which a lot of you probably know as being a... A purveyor of really high-quality niche cinema books, such as Stephen Thrower's um, Nightmare USA. A um, lot of great books. Uh, needless to say, I'm thrilled with that. The only, you know, downside to that, if there's any, is that the uh, because they want to make it the best release it can be and 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 pre-promote it. Uh, as as best they can. The release date has been pushed back. Uh, it's now going to come out next year, probably around March, I'd say, at this point. It's now going to be in full color. It was going to be in black and white before. So oh, really? it's going to be, yes, it's, it, it, it is going to look awesome. I, I mean, the layout is pretty much done now, and it looks really good. You think Bollywood? You think color? So, but 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 I'm guessing self-publishing and in color—that's uh, like a financial endeavor and a half. I would have had to have charged about fifty dollars mm. <laughs> to the consumer for the book, which I really didn't want to do. So, the only way to keep it affordable and self-published was to do it in black and white. And we had, you know, it looked good, but this now it looks. Fan. It looks stellar. It looks fantastic. So people are going to be very pleased by this book. Congratulations, man. I mean, I've said it, but I'm saying I'm saying it on the show. Congratulations. Thank what you. A, well, what what a like a f- fantastic autumn like present that will like bleed into winter and Christmas because you're going to be riding high on this, you know, and even into the next year, I suppose. So uh, it's uh, one would hope, yeah. Uh, so and uh, and you can keep up. On you know I'll be I have my blog Die Danger Die Die Kill which is uh, Die Danger Die Die Kill dot blogspot dot com and I'll be uh, posting occasionally with updates on when the book is coming out and the progress of the book so if you want to you know learn about that just read the blog I've also got all kinds of fun stuff on there too 
Um, what else? And the only thing, I guess, uh, uh, you know, if you go to the blog also, if you go to the, the handy right-hand sidebar there, you'll see links to my Facebook page, my Tumblr, my Twitter account, uh, all that good stuff. You're a uh, whore, Todd. That's what you are. I am, man. <laughs> I, am, I am the biggest floozy on the internet. Um, and then the only other I thing I... obviously. Yeah, oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, well, what, uh, oh, uh, Pop Offensive, my radio, my internet radio show, which I do with my good friend Jeff Heyman out of the uh, Peralta College radio station over in Oakland across the bay. The first Wednesday of every month, we play a bunch of great international pop, uh, dance, and film music from all over the world. A lot of great retro stuff. Really, really fun show. It's really about it's a it's it's not about um, playing the coolest stuff or the most you know avant-garde stuff. It's really just about pure pleasure, pure listening pleasure. Check us out. The next one will be on November 5th, and we're going to be playing a lot of music from the former Yugoslavia, which is a surprisingly verdant source of really, really interesting pop sounds. So that's that. So I, I, I think I'm good with playing my, my, I plug my blog, my book, my radio show. I'm good with that. I'm oh, really. To... I'm a pretty awesome dude myself, so I'll plug myself as well. As a, <laughs> as a human being. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, like yeah. I'll be uh, I'll be posting some selfies on my uh, my Instagram later, so you yeah. can check those out. Yeah, so make sure to flush the toilet before you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't take one of those selfies. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Right uh, okay, wonderful updates. Uh, we'll be looking forward to um, more updates as uh, each show goes along here. And uh, soon enough, we will be in March and it will be available. So very cool. Uh, we have a couple of segments here, so I'll give you a rundown of what to expect. And we will list the starting times of uh, these segments in the show post in case you want to jump ahead. We open with the Night Orchid section and a short bio on director Chang Peng Yi, as well as a reprisal of the Bridget Lin bio from prior episodes. Uh, and after that, we review and discuss the movie. There will be a break after that, and uh, after that, we'll have the greatest plot section of the show that uh, starts with a bio on lead Yu Hua and Another reprisal of uh, Bio we've done before for director Ulysses Ao. Uh, we, uh, it's been a few episodes since we talked of the director, and I, and I thought it'd be good to refresh listeners' memories of uh, the kind of uh, movies he's, uh, he's done, important or not. So, And uh, all that concludes with a chat uh, about the greatest plot, our review and discussion about it. So that's it. Uh, so, Night Orchid, it is from 1982, a plot from my review of the film. Um, and plots are not my strongest suit, but uh, I, I, I did I, I did attempt it and I did publish it online, so I suppose it's all right. But anyway, forces in the martial arts world are out of a jade horse, and amidst quiet streets and landscapes, bloodshed starts becoming a factor. Luring out famed swordsman Chu Liu Xiang, played by Adam Cheng. Viewers might have seen him in Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain and Gunman, among, um, among other things. They lure, lure him out of hiding. He reveals the sword after Jade Horse is a fake. And priorities change, though, as uh, roaming the midnight is Killer Night Orchid. 
and Chu and companions are naturally drawn in terms of who they think he is to the evil perverted Miss Lan, played by Lu Yi-chan, and uh, she's the kind of prime suspect. Amidst this, Chu saves Su Su, played by Bridget Lin, from being sacrificed in a ritual, and their connection grows stronger during a very dangerous time in this world, the Jiang Hu, or martial arts world. Uh, sound about right, Todd? That does sound right. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. you did a nice job of condensing which what is a pretty sprawling... A narrative into a nice, concise little paragraph. Right on. Uh, you never get that external per- perspective that <laughs> very often. So I was like, hey, I, I better check that I was kind of semi-correct. But there you go. Yeah, I'd say that that's correct. Oh, I'll, all I was going to say is that for me, the most salient point about this movie going in was that it was written and co-produced by Gu Long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that made me think two things. It made me think, I Uh-oh. really want to see this movie. <laughs> and then two, I probably will not understand this movie. Um, which was only, you know, true to a fact, to a point. I mean, it had... You know, we were introduced to a lot of characters right off the bat, many of whom aren't given the luxury of a name and many of whom are dead by the end of the first act. But uh, then when it gets into the whole uh, Night Orchid narrative, it turns into kind of a serial killer mystery then it's sort of then I could follow it pretty well, but you know I, I know I know you like these um, Choi Yun directed Gulong uh, adaptations for better or worse. I yes. I, I have a, recommend, a recommendation for you. Um, yes. A parody, kind of, of this whole genre, and you might hate the movie, but I'll recommend it anyway. It's it's a Hong Kong movie by um, David Chang, one of his directed movies called Legend of the Owl, and it's a Wu Xiaopian comedy. And Part of it is very airplane in style because at the very end they have a reveal of who the masked killer is and he reveals himself, it's me, and they look at him, right, no, we don't recognize you, who are you again? And he and he <laughs> right. tries to kind of like remember it's me I did this and I I was in charge of, I was responsible for this and this and this and they still nah nah <laughs> we, we we can't follow you man I showed up at that in that one scene five minutes into the movie for like ten seconds you don't remember me no. well I'm the guy <laughs> yeah it's a pretty fun one movie starring um, Eric Tsang is in it um, and uh, David Chang himself I believe is in it good good movie Legend of the Owl I will definitely check that out that cool. sounds very interesting uh, but the director Chang Peng Yi I have a few notes of him and I thought I'd seen more from this director based on absolutely nothing, just a hunch. But in actuality, this is only my second movie I've seen of Chang Peng Yi. The only other one I saw was a rather fun movie, and his debut, as a matter of fact, called Shaolin Kung Fu Mr. Gog. Is that how you pronounce it? Mr. Gog. <laughs> no, I've never seen that word before. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's not even a word. It's yeah. a, it's a Wong movie. Um, it's pretty cool, actually. I remember he had had some cool... Um, uh, like the uh, training sequences akin to the Bronze Man movies, these underground uh, chambers uh, with traps and what have you. Uh, so it's pretty cool. I recommend that too. But I heard Chang Peng Yi referred to as Taiwan's Choyun. And uh, although with not as much credit as uh, the famous uh, Shaw Brothers director and police story villain, but uh, uh, regardless, he was born in 1949 in Shandong province, China. He moved to Taiwan with his family subsequently and joined the army after completing school. 
where he focused on uh, wrestling. And uh, subsequently, after he got out of the army, he became a stuntman uh, after his service. And earliest credits um, in terms of that was as uh, far back as 1969. But uh, he moved to uh, working uh, behind the camera, too. He began logging credits as assistant director as early as 1971 and uh, worked on that uh, uh, via that credit, if you will, for a number of years, including on the 1976 Joseph Kuo movie, The 18 Bronze Man, uh, which was the same year that uh, Chang Pengyi debuted with that said movie, Shaolin Kung Fu, Strange Word. <laughs> Mr. God. <laughs> Mr. God. Yeah. And uh, the label Taiwan's Cho Yun stems from the fact that um, Chang's work has frequently been as well as Cho Yun, uh, Gulong adaptations, and the novelist even wrote, as Todd alluded to, the screenplay for Night Orchid. And uh, uh, Cheng Peng Yi even helped one such adaptation for Hong Kong's Shaw Brothers in 1982, a movie called Clan Feuds. Have you seen that, Todd, by the way? No, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I saw that in your notes, and I was... Now I'm probably going to, though. I think it's about Clan Feuds. Yeah. I might be wrong, though. Yeah, there, yeah, that <laughs> seems to be a recurring theme in the Shaw Brothers Gulag movies. There's Clan of Amazons, Clan of Intrigue, all that, all that clan action going on. Um, one film of uh, Chung Peng Yi's that I have seen, uh, another one is General Invincible, starring Pearl Chang Ling, and he did another of her films called The Famous Constables, which, all, which is also known as The Elimination Pursuit. Oh, I like that title. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. I, I have actually not seen that one yet. I've seen a lot of Pearl's movies, but not that one. Sweet po- uh, sweet poster. I see um, Chen Peng, uh, actor Chen Peng, is there in the middle, like with white, with uh, all dressed in black, but in uh, his uh, face is all white, and uh, Pearl is on the poster as well. So hey, I like that movie already. Chang remained mostly in Taiwan throughout his career, though, and he directed his last film in 1992. And as it often happens with these directors, by the late 80s and 90s. Uh, the genres that they worked in were kind of, you know, more modern genres, you know, whether comedies or action or even category three movies. So it's not like he, the, the Taiwanese cinema trend dictated that he could do these Gulong adaptations his entire career. So his last movie was something called The Little Shaolin Monk, which sounds like one of those annoying Kung Fu kids comedies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, which is, can be a minor delight on its own. Can be the worst experience of your life too, depending on the, the filmmaker who's uh, you know the Shaolin Popeye movies or Pope. Oh, the Popeye. Yeah. Popeye movies. Uh, that's yeah. like a prime <laughs> examples of I want to kill those mm. kids now. Yeah, <laughs> I only like kids in uh, Taiwan movies if they're vampires and they're peeing on people. I approve of that too. You know. Okay, <laughs> that's about that's about it. You, you, you could probably find such stuff in their Mr. Vampire series, if you heard of their series called Hello, Dracula. Hello, Dracula. That is exactly what I'm referring to. I saw yeah. the second one of those. Kind of fun. I liked it. Yeah, yeah they're all like, um, it's a little confusing because they're, you know, mostly available here under these, like, uh, you know, bastardized titles, like, I don't know which one it was, but it, I think it's called uh, Labyrinth of Death 
<laughs> which, no. which sounds like it's going to be some cool kind of House of Traps movie, but it's really no, it's really just a Hello Dracula movie. It's a hoppy vampire a, peeing with a little, yeah, with a little kid hopping vampire peeing on people, which is awesome. It's kind of awesome. <laughs> in its place. I don't. I, 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 I was thought to bring one or two of those movies to Taiwan more because it just made sense that Taiwan wanted get a bite out of the Mr. Vampire Apple, if you will. And, uh, yeah. and for one movie, at least, there's a second one, which is unrelated, uh, I, I assume, anyway. It was kind of fun. They did well, so I liked it. Uh, okay, moving on to Bridget Lynn. She's talked of, you know, previously and by so many people, including us, but she deserves a spotlight again. And she was born in 1954 in Taipei, Taiwan, and she's obviously a cinematic icon. You know, she was the goddess of... Taiwanese romance and Hong Kong fantasy cinema, really. I mean, the 70s, she she owned as, you know, like the queen of melodramas. Uh, some of them were not very good, but some of them were very good. But she was always, you know, splendid, and she always looked splendid. And then her transformation into this, you know, iconic uh, actress in fantasy cinema, mostly headed by Choi Hak in Hong Kong, was uh, a fantastic period as well. But she made her acting debut when she was only, I think, 18 years or so. And she's so good in that movie. In the 1973 movie, Outside the Window. And uh, yeah, about 18 or 19 years old. And it is a melodrama, but not too bad, actually. Um, she co-starred against what would become a very frequent co-star, uh, actor Chin Han. And uh, Lin became a huge star in Taiwan uh, soon thereafter, often cast in romances penned by novelist Chang Yao. And alongside not only Chin Han, as I said, but also Charlie Chin was a frequent co-star. And Charlie Chin went on to become part of the My Lucky Stars uh, or Lucky Stars gang in Hong Kong cinema. So he made a trans uh, transition to, um, to Hong Kong in the 80s as well. And uh, the, the, this is all like the 70s of the Bridget Lynn, um, uh, the canon is a stark contrast to these fantasy roles, which is uh, very amusing uh, because we saw a girl in those movies. And when she transitioned to Hong Kong, where she got put in many, uh, Choi Hak directed and produced, you know, visual epics like Sue Warriors from the Magic Mountain, Swordsman 2 and what have you. You know, the perception in my eyes anyway changed from the, the girl became a woman. And her iconic status was heightened. It, it was pretty good in Taiwan, but the cinema output was not very varied or creative because they just churned out these melodramas like you read about them. <laughs> and, you know, I, I enjoy watching them, I, but it's, it's, it's so, it's soapy. You know what I mean? It's soap opera melodramas and occasionally they have some mature tangents within them outside the window probably one of the better ones i've seen it has some darky themes and some mature themes rather than being a cheap melodrama where they just you know <laughs> you know turn it on like you read about which is pretty annoying at times you know so although as i said these taiwanese melodrama do require this high threshold and patience for melodrama she is often in my eyes a standout presence and uh some solid dramatic work came out of this period, like in the debut, movies like Cloud of Romance, The Marigolds, and uh, you could see, at least at one point, many of these on disc because Ocean Shores, the Hong Kong company, distributed a fair amount of her work uh, on video, uh, uh, on, on VHS and VCD and Laserdisc, and despite often being cropped um, movies, we rarely got to see these in widescreen. They did a clever thing at Ocean Shores. They Redid the subtitles. They they 
they copied the cinema subtitles, uh, spelling errors and all, but uh, form uh, made them fit the cropped frame instead. So at least you got to see all the subtitles because, as you well know, Todd, you, you've probably seen a cropped Hong Kong or Taiwan movie at some point, and the subtitles are about only 30, you know, like 30% visible. Yes, I've. Uh, it's been more than a few times. It's been. I think all of my, um, you know, my initial exposure to Hong Kong movies, during which I watched most of the classics, uh, were watching those uh, Ocean Shores videotapes with the almost completely uh, unreadable English subtitles. So. Yeah, yeah, that uh, technique I'm talking about. They did um, not for everything, but. Thankfully for a whole lot of Taiwanese movies, so so you could enjoy them uh, yeah. in terms of the translation. I mean, despite being cropped and all, so it was pretty good. I, I, outside the window, on a, like a nerdy tangent, is one of those uh, <laughs> was anyway one of those rare instances where we got such an old Taiwan movie in full widescreen on laserdisc and subtitle, and it is from the cinema print, obviously very watchable, and I, I just kind of like that that first movie got the best treatment it could at the time. And as it stands now, it hasn't become better for outside the window. It's still, that's the holy grail of, in terms of editions out there. But, um, you know, hopefully that will change uh, someday soon. And uh, as I said, Bridget Lin was equally part of Hong Kong cinema's golden age of the 80s and 90s. Uh, so she made that transition um, from Taiwan to Hong Kong. And obviously you can't go into detail in terms of every movie she did, but she... It was also fun that she mixed, you know, these fiery-eyed performances in fantasy movies. You know, everything from Sue and um, Bride with White Hair. Uh, but but she she proved her dramatic range. You know, she appeared in Police Story. She was, um, you know, the, essentially the leading lady of Police Story, Peking Opera Blues for Choi Hak. Uh, in uh, San Chung's underrated Lady in Black with uh, Tony Leung Garfei, Web of Deception, a good thriller, I, uh, it's also very underrated. Uh, Dream Lovers, was, uh, Dream Lovers with uh, Chiang Fat, where she it takes place in modern times and in the in the previous dynasty because they meet and they find out they were former lovers in a in in a former life. And it's a pretty good uh, pre-superstardom movie for Chiang Fat from 1985, Dream Lovers. So, uh, and uh, in the night, she did a movie called Red Dust with her former on- and off-screen lover, Chin Han. And as Todd said, The Bride with White Hair, one of the great classics of uh, 90s Hong Kong cinema. Ashes of Time for Wong Kar Wai. Chungking Express, unfortunately, for Wong Kar Wai. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that movie at all. <laughs> Uh, and their comedies such as Wong Jing's Zany Boys Are Easy in the 90s. So she was not just this pretty face to put in movies, whether fantasy or not, but she, she was a good very, good, very good actress that is retired from acting now. She married uh, businessman Michael Ying in 1994, and uh, as per almost usual, uh, when, he, when actresses uh, marry, they retire from the industry. She has, uh, if this info is current, two daughters, uh, born in 1997 and 2001. And uh, her first public appearance since her marriage uh, took place at a screening of Ashes of Time Redo or Redux at the 2008 New York Film Festival. And uh, she, she actually, she retired from movies, yes, but she did a, um, a late 90s movie called Bishonen, but that was, uh, she provided a narration for Bishonen, so it wasn't an on-screen uh, role. But uh, that's her last uh, film credit, I believe. And Troy Hark has been talking about getting her back, you know, uh, he wanted her for the um, Legend of Zoo, uh, the sequel to Zoo, Legend of Zoo, 
and uh, we've been talking about uh, two are on and off, but um, I, I think yeah, you know the world will survive knowing that the last credits occurred in the nineties. You know what I mean? The the, ca- the the work is, in my eyes, pretty pretty solid. So. Well, yeah, and she, it has to be said she dodged a bullet with that uh, Sue sequel. Not, not, I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> I'm actually a great fan of it. <laughs> oh, are you really? Wow. I, yeah. I like the pretty colors. Oh, okay. That's the one with all the, the crazy amount of CGI in it and all that stuff, right? That's the one, yep. It's one of those movies that where there's no middle ground. You either hate it or some love it. Uh, and uh, but but I I won't defend it, you know, violently or anything. I I, I get it. It's not as good. <laughs> well, I, well, I won't attack it violently either. Hey, so, Todd, take I, this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't send your your killer drone over from Sweden to bomb my apartment just because I don't like the sequel to Zoo. But yeah, Bridget Lynn, she's a very intense presence, and yeah, she's definitely uh, an attraction. I, I always, you know, that's all, it's always a, uh, an attribute when I see her listed in the cast of a, a movie. I always enjoy her a lot. I, I don't think many audiences would get that appeal in her 70s Taiwanese output, because those movies are widely uneven, and they're kind of just... It, it, they're hard to relate to because in many of those movies, the characters are all like higher class, uh, they're upper class characters and they live in these gorgeous apartments <laughs> and like, uh, yeah. and they have the problems that they do have. And I always found that kind of curious that they stuck to that for many movies, that these are upper class characters that just, um, with, with these like melodrama problems yeah but but it worked for the taiwanese audience otherwise they wouldn't have churned them out like they did i mean if you hearing maybe i mean maybe 15 of these 10 to 15 of these during that uh, 10 year period or what have you it's pretty you know that's you know one a year at least maybe two or three a year sometimes i don't think i've seen any of those to be honest i mean i i'm someone who came to her through you know the probably the first film i ever saw was with her was Zoo and uh, and Bride with White Hair, so I know her, her from that '80s incarnation as the sort of fiery, you know, witch woman <laughs> from those fantasy films. So, um, and I don't, yeah, I don't think I will be sampling any of those melodramas. They don't, they uh, my that kind of taxes my attention span a little bit too much. I wouldn't blame you. I mean, I'm 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 finding it hard to truly recommend them unless you're very interested. Unless you're very interested in uh, where it all began. I mean, I I, I could mm. probably, you know, if you were to say, hey, can you recommend me two movies or whatever, outside the window and Cloud of Romance, probably good examples. But outside the window being the widely better of them, and Cloud of Romance being she's so goddamn gorgeous in that one and elevates kind of that. Uh, uh, material that turns almost amusingly dark by mm-hmm. but by the time it hits the end, like whoa, <laughs> like uh, so yeah, it's 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 mildly guilty pleasures uh, sometimes. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, let's get into Night Orchid then. You know her um, not return to Taiwanese cinema, but she obviously uh, she had her foot kind of still in it in 1982. So for my short opinion. You know, this genre in 1982, unless it was Shaw Brothers, could feel somewhat out of place, you know, because the cinematic world were turning modern uh, with the modern genres, comedies and action and what have you. But the movie shows it has 
the chops and colors to provide this out of this world fantasy craziness and decide to match it. And uh, it, uh, it it definitely is very very entertaining. It isn't. It doesn't matter very much emotionally, but it wants us to believe that it matters emotionally. But you, for me, for me anyway, connecting to the characters is something I do not. But it does attempt it, which I, I suppose is a you know, a valid thing, but uh, I look at it for the uh, craziness, if you will. So that, so that, that's my short opinion. What did you think of Night Orchid, Todd? I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, to your point, yeah, this was, uh, you know, even uh, Choi Yun had, st- had stopped making these kind of Kulong adaptations uh, in 1982. He was, I mean, he was still doing uh, Kulong adaptations, but he was veering into sort of the zoo territory. That was kind of when Shaw Brothers was, like, making all those movies, those special effects heavy, you know, really fast-paced things. So he was doing stuff like that. And this is sort of more like a a classic uh, take on those stories. And, yeah, the romance, maybe you don't... It's, you know, the romance is more... It's romantic in an atmospheric sense more than it is in a, you know, visceral or emotional sense, you know. But I liked, I, I enjoyed it. As I said, uh, it, the, you know, the plot got a little hard to follow. Um, and it sort of does a switcheroo on you because it starts like every other Wuja movie where there's some MacGuffin that everyone is after. In this case, it's... It's not a weapon, it's this jade horse, which is kind of a bauble. It looks like something you'd get out of the um, you know, ma- martial world version of Sky Mall or something. But then uh, It looked like a thrift store find, let's be honest. It did, it did, yeah, it did, actually. Yeah, it did. It would kind of look like the, you know, the, the horse that the Brady Bunch has in their living room, except smaller. Um, not to... Not to make fun of the jade horse but then the whole thing switches and it's all about the night orchid this killer who's sort of this supernatural killer who has like is faceless except right before he she or it kills there's a projection of a of a of an orchid orchid on its face which was very interesting pretty pretty arresting image actually um uh, but but you're right. I mean, I had the same worry going into it. Like, oh my God, Gulong wrote it. Is it gonna go nuts? And uh, you know, you'll have. I, I like those movies in general, but I I'm not gonna lie to you and say that I I can follow all the twists and characters because they just, you know, they open the hatch and out falls fifty of <laughs> an additional <laughs> right, plot exactly. twists and characters. Like, don't 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 don't. Okay, yeah. deal with it. Yeah, and and I can't, but it's kind of fun in a way. And I remember Killer Clans, which is one of the better ones, uh, one of the first Choyun movies I saw. That had a ton of it, but it it felt okay in that movie. It was just a fun ride to be on, like it just switcheroo, switcheroo, switcheroo upon upon upon. Yes, yeah. There's a lot of switch switches of uh, reversals of allegiances and identities, and this didn't have so much of that. Just had a lot of characters, and uh, who are very cursorily, cursorily uh, introduced. And like I said, a lot of them don't even have names. But 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 it kind of starts that way, you know. You you absolutely 100% correct because it opens, you know. 
in a very moody fashion, you know, a town in decay, it's windy, it's dark, and there's this blind swordsman walking the town and is confronted, but certainly not um, scared of his um, the, the people that are confronting him. And this sets up that the martial art world is, uh, it has conflict, as per usual. And it seems to me that this was almost wholly abandoned uh, in favor of who is Night Orchid, which is absolutely fine, and uh, but also kind of a weakness because I, it, they, it never comes back and like ties itself together. Like, Aha, the conflict in the beginning, now it's there at the end, and now we get it. Right. No, once they once they drop the Jade Horse, the Jade Horse is gone. There's never another a reference to it. Um, it seems to have just been a device for the killer to lure uh, Hero 2 out of hiding because he has gone into uh, self-exile after failing to save the woman he loved I, is what I got out of it. So he... And sh- so he in disgrace and shame, like disappears, and then and this villain, for reasons unknown, wants to lure him out. And as the the horse was a gift to, he gifted the horse to a uh, disciple or something like that. They attack the the disciple's family and take the uh, and take the horse, which turns out to be fake which i don't understand that either why that was necessary but uh but but it was never like truly frustrating to me like it, it just okay as soon as bridget lynn is introduced we get the second movie kind of but if, yeah. we, if we go back a little to to the price sections because they're they're all quotable elements uh chang peng shoots or oh, well his cinematographer does a very um it's it's a good looking production it may not be exactly like a Shaw Brothers movie, but the opening is very moody, and uh, there's, there's some hints of Leone here, you know, as close-ups of eyes and silence before anything happens, you know, and uh, it's it's a well-executed reference, if you will, And uh, but it's slow. And what I like partly about the movie when during this section that is ultimately abandoned, if you will, is the fact that Chang Peng Yi is slow, is slow, and then boom! It goes from yeah. 1 to 11 if you think of what happens when uh, the blind man and his uh, bodyguard, the, la- the lady, uh, not Bridget Lynn, is attacked by the uh, the pregnant woman stops them. Oh, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. And that's where it goes from 1 to 11. And I'm sure you want to talk uh, essentially what happens in that scene. That was when I was like, yeah, sign me up. Because as you know, I like to see things in movies be they good or bad, I really appreciate seeing something I've never seen before. And uh, this is a movie in which a ninja bursts out of a pregnant woman's stomach. Is yes, that sir. Yes, that is what happens. This woman's like, oh, help me, I'm pregnant. And she's really pregnant. And her stomach, stomach is pulsating, too. It's like, pulsating. Oh and, like, her navel is, like... There's like a, a, a some kind of a gleaming piece of uh, you know uh, jade piece or something. Her her navel is glowing red, and then boom, this ninja just jumps out, and she's gone. You know, she, she's the vessel, and she's uh, and I, I'm thinking that she was 
thoroughly into it into it because of the course you know <laughs> you never yes. learn of these things because you know we never see her again presumably you know right. just, uh, uh, you know it's it's kind of wonderful and throughout it, the movie kind of Cheng Peng Yi does this to us goes back to slow and then boom to 11 again and I, I stand by that choice I kind of like it because you raise your eyebrows definitely and you can even at least I do you can even go verbal because you're so surprised, like, holy fucking shit. Yeah, and, yeah. And you don't see that too many with too many movies because you think you've seen everything. But as with, uh, just like you said, I did not expect that first viewing and I've kind of forgotten about it. The second viewing too, like, holy hell, that's right. This movie was great. You know, it wasn't slow. Yeah, it, yeah, because it's not really that kind of movie. It's not like one of the Shaolin drunkard movies or something where just crazy stuff is happening all the time. Yeah. This was like pretty much like a pretty stolid sort of, it's like, it's basically a, a, a martial uh, world mystery, which Gulong is very good at. And uh, so it's going on at that kind of pace, and then these completely batshit crazy things will happen. And they execute it, too. That's why I like Taiwanese cinema. In Hong Kong, of course, they are apt at executing this. It's not like they, you know, through some confusing editing, get it done. We get what happened, and... I think uh, it's skill, man. It's it's action directing skill, yeah. and obviously a, a director with a vision as well uh, to take Gulong, who can write any batshit crazy thing he wants. But in this case, they, they really do execute that. That is a fantastic uh, sequence of special effects and editing and all of that. Definitely, I'd definitely like to learn more about the. Uh special effects industry in Taiwan during this period, because they really were, um, you know, I think the quality of the effects are generally generally pretty good, and when they're not, it's because, you know, they maybe overreach their grasp, but the thing about the Taiwanese special effects people on these movies is that they always go for it, you know, they're all, you know, uh, you know, they, they'll try and give you these weird giant creatures and like these weird gore effects and and stuff like that i mean some of the there was a lot of gore in this movie and some of it didn't communicate whereas it's like i don't know what i'm looking at but i know it's supposed to be inside someone's body you know but but definitely some really really daring work where you know sometimes they may not have had the means but they they just went for it i'd be very interested in learning more about these people and the techniques and all of that so i mean they even dedicate themselves to rig up on wires this uh, female garment that eventually takes a character's head off oh yeah i mean they, they you know that's a wire rig that you have to pull off and i mean they speed it up for for the movie and make you know space sounds uh, uh, accompanying it you know yeah yeah but that takes you know a little wire rig and uh, there were some taiwanese uh, you know some uh, pioneers in terms of that i think either i think robert tai who uh, was behind uh, Ninja the Final Duel, among other things, has always been kind of quoted as someone who uh, who uh, developed some wire work in Taiwan to an extent, or a style within wire work that, that he, uh, he also went for it. Because if you see Ninja the Final Duel, there is some great stuff in there. There is some shoddy stuff in there, like the, wa uh -huh. the water spiders 
in uh, the, that they they uh, paddle or they, they paddle on a river, but then the water spiders have to fly, and it's just them lifting up these limp creatures in the air. You know, uh, so it, so uh-huh. it looks it looks like like a, like a, a very poor effect, but they went for it and uh, tried it. So so uh, and I love uh, Adam Chang's uh, intro when he is lured out because he uh, flies out of the woods not once not twice but three <laughs> times and then poses poses with his fan looking very confident and like like this awesome hero with awesome hero music and Adam Chang at this time anyway uh, or in in general. This was his uh, part of his image, you know, on screen and on TV. People associated Adam Chang as he was the swordplay hero. You know, he he's he's even that in Sue Warriors from the Magic Mountain before he becomes possessed. You know, he is this suave, you know, cool swordplay hero, and uh, they 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 take advantage of what people know of Adam Chang when they introduce him uh, in this movie. Yeah. Well, also I think uh, that's a that's a hallmark of Gu Long's work too, because his stuff is very much a product of the sixties and his heroes often tend to be these kind of suave James Bondian sorts of, uh, even though set in the, you know, in the martial world, they, they have a definite James Bond quality. And I thought, uh, I thought that, um, that he did a great, that Adam Chang did a great job with that. I thought he made a, a perfect, you know, he embodied that kind of hero pretty much perfectly. He's, uh, I like that character and I like how in other movies they toyed with that character image. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie called, uh, starring Adam Chang called The Sword. It was made in Hong Kong. And it's, it takes this, it's like a very contemplative Wuxia Pian where this, you know, character strives to get the best sword and be the best in the Jianghu, but kind of just thinks of, you know, after a while in the movie, like, what's the point? And, mm-hmm. and, and those are like valid thoughts for that movie that uh, and Adam Chang turns out to be, I, I think he's a solid actor, but he, he really took, um, he wanted to um, provide like a diverse portrayal of these kind of heroes you know after mm-hmm. a while i think it's it's bound to get tired and the sword presented mater- material that wasn't available before you know and uh, it's a very like contemplative or introspective if you will uh, mm-hmm. uh, and short too like an 80 minute movie with depth <laughs> yeah i mean that's a theme that comes up in in a lot of the shaw brothers Wuja films uh especially Yun's, where there's this idea of the martial world these these fighters in the martial world being locked in this, you know, trapped in this unceasing cycle of combat and how pointless it is after a while, you know, and uh, that's really interesting. One thing, I w- another thing I wanted to say about this movie technically, I mean, it is a, it's a really good looking film. It's a pretty classy looking movie. Maybe not so much as the films we were talking about last time, but that's kind of a high bar, but, uh, also, the score, it has a, a traditional orchestral score. It's credited to Wong Mao San. And uh, I don't think it's needle drop because it's pretty consistent from start to finish. And it has themes that come up again and again. But it's a really classy, really evocative score. And it added a lot 
to the movie for me. You know, unlike Greatest Plot, which seemed to consist of all Western music. <laughs> yes, yeah, that was like the most Western damage soundtrack <laughs> I'd ever heard. I thought they were going to start doing Ghost Riders in the Sky. Like someone, someone was going to start singing Yippee-I-O-Yippee-I-A. <laughs> it was that. It was that Western, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that, that, that's a great observation about the Night Orchid because you, you, you expect it to be like three, two, one, Morricone, three, two, one, Sean Michel Jarre, you know. Yeah, and there's none. There's none of that in there. So, and that uh, that particular um, composer did a lot of work. I looked at his HK, his, his Hong Kong movie database listing. A lot of films he worked on. Right. So, And hopefully a lot of original music too. Yeah. As opposed to Ghost Hill last time, you know, when we um, when we get to the cave setting, which is uh, pretty neat uh, in this one, we don't we don't get this big, burly, bearded uh, guy and, uh, being a villain in this one. We get a hot chick instead. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's true. Uh, and uh, the hot ch- the hot chick getting bathed and uh, being very sexual, and that's uh, Louis Chan. Uh, I've seen in a variety of IFD movies because her uh, the movie she made uh, became um, uh, were source movies for various IFD movies. So I, I've come to uh, appreciate her for uh, for that. Is that Miss 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 Lan? Yes, was yes, that the name of her character? Yeah, she yeah she was kind of kinky. Yes, indeed. I think there was even some sort of uh, sapphic overtones at one point. There's sort of some lesbian overtones to a couple scenes. That was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And within that's it, very much something you can approve of as a dude, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I mean, the the design really is well. It showed off quite well. It's not on the level of Ghost Hill or anything, but it's it's very colorful. That that cave set is quite big, and it's yeah. made for widescreen. I mean, it's uh, yes. th- thankfully that's the way we can look uh, view this movie now in widescreen and very much colorful. And um, it's confusing in a way if you move move to a, a fact that is also surprising. Uh, 24 minutes in, we get the first view of Bridget Lynn. They don't, you know, reveal that, you know, Bridget Lynn is in the movie. We promise she's in it. Like, they're not desperate that way. They they open uh, the movie with her being uh, led to um, being sacrificed, you know. To, to the be go- sacrificed, yeah. To the gods or something. I, I was a bit confused by that uh, as well. But she is ultimately saved, and then her and Adam Cheng's character, they bond and there will be some you know twists and reveals along the way that makes them question their building romance and on paper it's pretty solid material executed in a way where like yeah it's it's functional but it's definitely not affecting you know i i'm not sitting there and like oh my god you know <laughs> uh, yeah. that that is reserved for all the special effects craziness but having said that it's not embarrassing or anything like uh, uh, it's fine but it's not affecting I suppose yeah yeah, there is a very vaguely well it's not vaguely implied but there's there's a supernatural element to the villains in this movie that is never really explained and in fact uh, I won't spoil the movie at all but at the end of the movie it's like it may not make sense, but you know, they're yeah, they set they make sacrifices, um, and they almost and there's almost sort of a cultish aspect too, because 
at the the first scene I think takes place in this lair and there's a giant eyeball on the wall and I love any movie that has a lair with a giant eyeball on the wall um, but then it starts with some guy and he's like there's he has like these disciples it looks like it's some kind of a mass or something and he says he's something like now it is time for our mission to be to begin or something like that and then the ninja the ninja guys uh, spring up out of nowhere and and go off to burst out of pregnant women's stomach and the like. They do some. Uh, they have some other very interesting entrances. Do you remember the part where there were those marionettes and those turned into ninjas somehow? I think anyway. All I'm thinking of now is the fact that uh, when we see the ninja, he's in this. Uh, a skin-tight bodysuit that is very yes. uh, glitter in appearance. You know, it looks like they sp- they, they they spread some glitter on him, like fabulous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're they're very Cirque du Soleil, the ninjas. But uh, and and also they have stocking masks on, so there's not even the you know the little eye holes, so you don't see they're they're totally um, dehumanized, which is kind of cool. You know, it makes them a little bit more threatening and weird. Uh, but there is, um, I mean, there are elements of the finale that we can't talk of without uh, spoiling it, because uh, how how could you not? I mean, uh, I, as I said, there is a stretch before where the characters talk of their past scars and emotions, and, and it matters for the movie, of course, but you quickly forget it when the finale hits you and uh, they reveal that uh, Don Wong is, this, um, is our villain, you know, this cackling villain, which is... Uh, he's not in a movie a whole lot, but it's welcome to see Don Wong being a little bit more outlandish. He's normally a very stoic, uh, even excellent uh, martial arts performer, uh, but he never, you know, cackled, or and he certainly never wore, wore makeup or looked like a pharaoh or something like that. <laughs> like yeah, that's movie. right. Yeah, there's a weird Egyptian theme to his uh, getup, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, but he's in it briefly, so if you're wondering why we haven't mentioned Don Wong, I think he's like third in the cast list. But the underground finale, I mean, uh, I, I gotta track back the little hero because this one does the animal skin gods or fighters right, as opposed to little hero who that did not do the various uh, uh, fighters that dressed in animal garments or animal skin right oh, at all. Oh, you mean? Uh... Zodiac fighters, isn't that what you're talking about? No, I remember in Little Hero, she uh, Polyquan fought, fought maybe in Zodiac fighters too. In Little Hero, uh, Polyquan fought various people in like tiger with, with tiger claws and tiger masks, and it was kind of just pretty lame in Little Hero. Here, on the other hand, uh, Don Wong turns a lever and then wakes up his. Uh, you know, let's oh, say if they yeah. had like tiger, uh, t- they were dressed as tigers essentially. And their eyes start to like almost electronically, like like. Yeah, they're like robots, and they were like half. They were half leopard, half man. Like half their faces were a leopard, and and half was human. And it looked really. They looked like these creepy mutations with robot eyes. And I mean, Little Hero was a comedy, but I just thought of to myself like. It worked. I mean, you can do this stuff. <laughs> you know, you can put stuntman in, like in to, in animal clothing or animal skin, and make it appear pretty badass. And and it's and it's. I love these fantasy movies because of this. Because when it's done right, like the creative like possibilities are endless, 
if you are a cinema that can execute it. And again, Taiwanese cinema in this case are very much apt at executing it, not only the fight action, but, you know, bizarre elements like the fact that they turn turn on like robots. You see their eyes light up and it doesn't make sense at all, but it's fantasy, man, and it's so much fun. It's so much fun. Yeah, I mean, I said earlier the supernatural elements aren't really supported that much by the overall story, but still, they make the movie really fun, so I'm not complaining. I mean... You know, my misgivings about this movie were way outweighed by just how much fun I had watching it. Yeah. And uh, even like when they, um, uh, Adam Chang has to make sure Bridget Lynn doesn't, uh, uh, isn't sunk into an acid bath. And uh, so, he's, <laughs> so, he's, so, so he's fighting with uh, those guys. And there's a major, major fluff or flub in the movie. Uh, during the acid bath sequence. And again, maybe they saw it when they shot, maybe they didn't, or they couldn't afford to do a second take. Uh, At one point, one of the uh, leopard, uh, half-man, half-leopard fighters falls into the water, splashes, you know, acid in the movie, but colored water onto whoever is lying there. Maybe it's Bridget Lynn. And you can can see her, like, uh, move out of the shot because she didn't expect expect to get all that water splashed over her. I miss that. The character obviously is fine. She never got any acid on her, but it's a it's like a bucket load of water she gets all over her face. <laughs> so it's but it's it, it it's so much fun. And I mean, I'm I'm gonna stop quoting stuff now, other than saying that the uh, vaguely saying that the most fun I had, I think, during the finale was the fact that the glitter ninja was now white and flat as a paper, but yet, I mean, you you, you can explain the, the concept and effect if you like, uh, because I'd never seen that either. It, it was a very cartoonish idea. It was like something out of a Warner Brothers cartoon. But yeah, he becomes this, it is, I mean, literally they had a white, paper cutout in the shape of the ninja, but he was like sliding under doorways. And uh, <laughs> I think they even used like a, an animation of, of him, but that was, yeah, crazy. That was really crazy. And at one point he escapes and you see that someone's just pulling this, this cutout, this sheet of paper. But it works, man. I mean, it, it totally it, works. Yeah. I mean, it flows as you know. It's not like it crumbles or anything, and like uh, it, it just flows, man, along the ground. Yeah. And and he turns into you know the uh, the the glitter ninja, you know, in the flesh too, and then back to paper paper as possible. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, again, doesn't matter as a dramatic movie, but it's moody and it's unexpected, and it's the times it does, you know, crank it up to eleven. It does it really really well in a special effects way that and i might be sounding like a grandpa here but i think this works a hell of a lot better than any highly developed technical tools filmmakers have at their their disposal today because this required to come up with a physical creative solution and i think this um can never be uh, matched today. You know, it's a thing of the time, but not an embarrassing thing of the time. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, unlike CGI effects, it's not distracting. You know, they don't really call attention to themselves. It's like you actually are 
they they catch you up in the idea that's trying to be that they're trying to present of a of a ninja who renders himself two dimensional or whatever. It's like you know, whereas there's something very self reflexive and very kind of show offy about about uh, CGI. This is just you know, well they're called practical effects for a reason. You know, they're just getting the job done and getting it done in an imaginative way and it and it makes very clear what the idea and the idea is really cool if that you know that's all you need if the idea is really really cool and it captures your imagination it sucks you right in who cares if it's how much rubber and you know prosthetics and and silly you know things hanging off strings are involved if it if it captures your imagination and pulls you in then it's a good effect mm-hmm. as far as i'm concerned absolutely agree fairly agree and so that's really the end of my notes obviously recommended even highly recommended it's a it's a fun one kids yes uh, so as for availability a little bit problematic i mean it was out there anyway hoker records issued a dvd in taiwan featuring a remastered widescreen version but unfortunately it only had permanent Chinese subtitles on it, and not the subtitles from the cinema print. They they generated new ones, but uh, and put it on the remastered print. But you couldn't turn them off or anything. But and no English options. So what we had to watch therefore was someone's uh, fantastic work. Yeah, someone made uh, subtitles for English subtitles for, and you know a fan sub edition. Yeah, using this transfer and adding these excellent. English subtitles on top of the Chinese ones, and uh, so thank you to anyone who did that. I couldn't find the Hoker DVD listed on the Asia, so it's possibly out of print or just deleted from their database, or listed under a different title. Um, and speaking of titles, <laughs> the movie is also officially, or maybe unofficially, uh, known as Demon Fighter. That's fine. Uh, under the Wu Tang Collection VHS line, it was Faster Blade, Poisonous Darts. <laughs> Fine, I suppose. Uh, Video Asia released a DVD of it as Monster of Flying Daggers, which is crap. The title, yeah, probably the DVD. Too. Yeah, you know they didn't add any um, any Zs at least, you know, to, to the titles. You know, Wu Tang <laughs> pre- presents Demon Fighters. Zers, yeah, two Zs, yeah. Um, I, I don't know of the specs of the um, Video Asia DVD, but I have a sneaky suspicion that their DVD is not the Hoker one subtitle, but probably from an older, lesser print. So um, there you go. But again, I can't confirm it. But uh, what I have is excellent. And if I can find the Hoker DVD, I'll, I'll, I would love to own an original because they did a good job, you know, presenting the print and what have you. But uh, Hoka Records did Ghost Hill and the Fly Dragon Mountain as well, so it wasn't a given that English subtitles were done for these releases. This film fits in well with with those two films too. It's sort of the same, you know, same level of quality, same genre basically. And ten years earlier, there was still quality and technical execution available in Taiwan, and even ten years later. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's why I wanted to draw sort of a line between episodes that 10 years later, Taiwan still knew it. it you know, it, the perspective was probably in the early 70s, they knew it pretty well in the early 80s. You kind of expect the technical achieve, technical development to be there. But, you know, uh, it's regardless if, if you look at it that way, the 70s and 80s both, uh, all offer, uh, you know, technical uh, technical excellence even. So... There you go. So, so uh, there's some gems out of Taiwan that way. 
Uh, okay, let's take a break, and after that, we'll discuss the listener choice. The movie, The Greatest Plot from 1977, my first viewing and Todd's first viewing. Normally, I already have it in the memory bank, if you will. So uh, follow us uh, after a break and check out our views and such. So um, see you after a break. Welcome back in the second movie of this episode is The Greatest Plot from 1977. Again, a listener request. So we're honoring that because we never received one before. So a um, mm-hmm. new experience uh, in terms of uh, getting requests, and I had not watched the movie before, so it was a completely cold experience for me. So we'll see what happens, uh, what we thought of it. But first of all, plot, newly appointed Emperor Yung Ching, played by Hu Hua, betrays his former brothers and sisters because uh, actress Xu Feng leads them. So you would you would have to say the brothers and sisters are the ones he betrayed. And he goes on a power trip instead of after betraying them. He becomes a tyrant, essentially. And wicked, as the movie says. You know, you're wicked. Which <laughs> <laughs> is like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> wicked. Uh, but few of them that are left after he ki- kills, uh, kills uh, almost all of them off swears to take revenge for their fallen comrades. That's the great plot <laughs> that's the greatest plot it's, a, it's an ordinary that really plot. is the greatest yeah it's a pretty straightforward plot you did a very nice job of, of summarizing it thank you very much uh, let's um, let's talk uh, one of the players and uh, uh, the director of this movie first of all the lead as I said Yu Hua one of the more frequent stars of the of martial arts cinema, along with the likes of Lolit, who's also in this movie. And according to uh, Yves Gendron's bio on him, on the, uh, what was the website? Hong Kong Cinema View from the Brooklyn Bridge website. It's no longer active. That was a great site. It's a very good, good site. It's still up there, so you can still find some excellent information and bio. So I wanted to give Eve a um, shout-out. So his bio on him says that he remains underappreciated in the West compared to, due to lack of exposure, to the likes of Law Elite, but highly appreciated on home, gr- home grounds, uh, ultimately, both on film and TV. Yu uh, Hua was born, uh, his real name, uh, Liang Le... Hua, uh, he was born in Shanghai in 1942. He attended the Shanghai Music Institute and at 20 emigrated to Hong Kong. And if we cut to the 60s, he answered a recruitment ad placed by Shaw Brothers and was selected for their actors training program. And it was, he was given lessons in acting, in dance and singing and on-screen martial arts before becoming a contract player in 1965. And uh, now he was going by the, well, his screen name that he took or was given was Yue Hua. Um, his English name is Elliot, by the way. It apparently has been that on some movie, probably a later movie, post-Shaw Brothers, I would gather, because he did movies post-Shaw Brothers. Uh, but anyway, early appearances include playing the Monkey King in Shaw Brothers' Journey to the West adaptation, starting with The Monkey Ghost West. And he also reprised the role for the two sequels that followed uh, a couple of years later. Uh, I've only seen the first one. Uh, but in 1966, he got cast opposite Cheng Pei Pei as 
the martial artist who's uh, acting as a drunken beggar, you know, in King Who's classic, Come Drink With Me. Uh, and uh, he made a role his own. It really is one of his more iconic roles. Uh, although, reportedly, director King Who uh, not only had him dubbed by an older actor because he was concerned of uh, you know, tender age of uh, 23, he wanted the character to sound a little bit more like a man or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... You know, even he even went method with the actor. He, he had him drink wine before each or several scenes that involved wine to get him into character. And this was the first time young Yu Hua had ever been drunk. <laughs> so, welcome to the movie business, son. Have a while. You're right. You, you've got to love the ethics of the Hong Kong movie industry <laughs> circa 1965. Now drink it. Yeah. It's good for you. Shut up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So there you go. It's a, it's a, I mean, have you seen Come Drink With Me at all? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's great in it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, um, it's a drunken cat, I believe he's uh, referred to in the subtitles, and he has some sing, singing numbers, and he looks great, looks great. Um, he, if we establish kind of the era, he was part of the era where martial arts heroines were leads, but they necessarily, they weren't like um, soul leads, you know, they, there was often you know, a male hero in support, if you will. But the switch that happened is quite interesting, of course, because you you had martial art heroines as leads and leading men was kind of out of the question for these movies. But Chang Chie kind of changed that with uh, One on Swordsman starring Jimmy Wang Yu. And slowly but surely, it became more common to have uh, males as, as leading men in these kind of movies. And I always found that quite interesting. Yeah, a lot of that... Tradition came from the Cantonese movies like Connie Chan and Josephine Chow and all of those, um, where yeah, all of the hero, all the Wuja films that the the hero was always played by a woman. Um, a lot of that is because the audience for those films were largely women, um, and that's something that Chang Che kind of rebelled against uh, with his movies, his super macho movies, you know. Pretty macho indeed, yeah. It's interesting, though, prob- uh, some of these uh, leading ladies played male characters in certain movies. I mean, I think that, yeah. so it's, uh, that, that's also like um, a tradition in these movies, whether or not there was a leading lady tradition. You always had characters, you know, it's, as long as they had their hairs underneath a hat, uh, uh, Liking come drink with me, you know. She Cheng Pei Pei. Everybody thinks uh, she's a dude, and you know, obviously <laughs> we know we know that for heaven's sake that's Cheng Pei Pei. But that was the kind of um, trope, if you will, that everyone knew of probably. But they, it was fun to have there. Like the the reveal is always uh, kind of fun when a long hair is seen. Oh my God, an actual woman. <laughs> Uh, but interesting enough, you know, Chang Chie, as frequent of a director he was and as frequent of an actor Yu Hua was, uh, Chang Chie never or rarely called upon the services of the actor. I mean, I checked the uh, filmography and I saw him listed as one of the cast members in the water margin. But there were a lot of cast members. There were a lot members. of beeps in that movie. In yeah. that movie, you could get me to recap that in a two or ten <laughs> sentence plot. It's like, take the water margin and make it into a two hour movie. Great. You know, mm-hmm. good luck. And indeed, I was just filled, that movie. One of my least favorite Chang Chia movies, to be honest. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, maybe he didn't want to um, kind of um, cast him, possibly due to his more like gentleman-like, more smooth appearance. Because Chang Chia's heroes, 
uh, were very much, as you alluded to, uh, more there, there was a macho nature to them and his movies, uh, whether swordplay or or kung fu movies, uh, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. But Yu Hua, you know, kind of never fit that probably. Uh, but it didn't stop him from appearing in versatile roles. Uh, quite a lot focusing on martial arts, of course, but um, and a lot was geared towards uh, swordplay, you know, knight heroes uh, rather than extensive. Kung Fu brawls so featuring your one. Yeah, he has a grace that that uh, complements those kind of roles, the the Wuja swordsman roles. Whereas, yeah, someone like Tilong in the Chang Che movie, it's it's really visceral fighting, you know, literally because people's stomachs are always getting slashed open yeah. and <laughs> stuff like that. So yeah, I wouldn't say uh, yeah, Hugh Wa was not perfectly suited to those. So. But uh, yeah, he was also kind of just trained for movie fights, so uh, mm-hmm. maybe it would be uh, quite unnatural for him to go into kung fu brawls, you know, uh, continually. So, uh, but uh, as the seventies went on, Yu Hua was part of you know shifting trends and genres struggling to matter, like the swordplay being replaced by the kung fu movie, essentially. But he kept working, and uh, arguably why he mattered to uh, producers and financiers and studios and why they employed him was due to a decent set of acting skills too. Uh, it was not just this Kung Fu guy that was embarrassing him in all scenes in between or anything. It was pretty solid <laughs> all around, you know. And he even ventured into modern era movies like The Pursuit, Payment in Blood, which is one of the lost Shaw Brothers movies, um, which uh, I've seen a trailer for Payment in Blood and I'm, I'm sad that it's not available. It looks pretty good. It's from the director of The Killer Snakes and Boxer's Omen and what have you, Kuei uh, Chi Hong, but it's, uh, it's a modern-day uh, action thrill, if you will. And he also worked with uh, class directors like Cho Yun on multiple classics, such as uh, Intimate Confessions of a Chinese Courtesan. He's the, uh, he's the police officer, essentially, that investigates Ai Nu right. and, try, and try to, uh, tries to bust her, if you will, nail her. Uh, he's also, and a lot of people were in that movie, Cho Yun's classic Cantonese comedy, House of 72 Tenants. Which uh, was a, at that time in the early 70s, Mandarin cinema was a dominate, uh, dominating language of cinema. But there was Cho Yun making a successful Cantonese language movie, and um, uh, Yu Hua was part of the very, very large cast of House of 72 Tenants. He also played uh, one of my favorite roles of his in the Cho Yun film was he played the the monk sidekick to T. Lung's character in uh, Clans of Intrigue, which is one of my favorite movies. Could you recap that if you tried, or is, is it impossible? <laughs> uh, I'd have to give it another watch. I think I think I could, but I certainly... How many twists? About 45. Right. I mean, I've seen it, yeah, I mean, I've probably seen it three or four times, and I still can't off the top of my head give you a... Well, there's Clans, and there's Intrigue, and... So, uh, so know, I mean... Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some, you know, fog and shrouded forests, you know, there's some kung fu battles on fog and shrouded marshes, you know, it's a it's a Choi Yen film, what can I say? Indeed. You could also see Yu Hua in some of Shaw Brothers International co-productions, like, uh, which I believe is a German co-production, Virgins of the Seven Seas, and Superman Against the Amazon, which I believe had involvement from Italy. So, um, and Yu Hua 
also uh, did venture outside of shores to make several indie uh, independent Taiwanese productions. Uh, he was one of those actors and contract players that eventually, anyway, could jump between Shore Brothers and smaller movies uh, if he desired. Uh, some players were confined to Shore Brothers. You know, literally, they couldn't go outside the gates necessarily, <laughs> live there, make movies there. But uh, they, they, depending on who you were in the company, then the, the deals were flexible, I suppose. And, and as Todd alluded to, he, he also appeared in uh, a fair amount of Choyun's uh, many Gulong adaptations of this time, including, as you said, Clans of Intrigue, Killer Clans, and Heroes Shed No Tears, which is the name of a subsequent uh, action movie by John Woo. He's one of those actors, though, that never slowed down, and he eventually began mixing frequent film appearances with TV roles as well. Uh, films that included the excellent new wave efforts out of Hong Kong, like Terry Tong's gritty, coolie killer, and the classic Dennis Yu horror movie, The Imp, where he plays a priest. Very good movies, very good. Uh, he entered the world of television in the late 70s, uh, adding further acclaim and success to his career, and starred in several popular TV serials, primarily at TVB, which uh, was owned by uh, Shaw Brothers, so. And it could be argued to be a sensible step as Shaw Brothers as a film factory in the 80s were declining, but TV was on the rise. So he made a, a clever, you know, step and uh, stayed at TVB and uh, had notable roles and highlights, including the 1989 TVB hit Looking Back in Anger. Uh, so that's the TV section. And he retired from acting in the 90s um, and migrated with his wife, Tani Chen, which is also a Shaw Brothers actress, to Canada. And uh, during his stay, became the chairman of the Association of Performing Arts in, uh, in Canada, uh, but did return to Hong Kong eventually and to film and TV in 2006. Uh, he has movie appearances in the movie Confession of Pain and Woo Hoo, which is the big, like Wong Jing produced Infernal Affairs, not ripoff because Infernal Affairs had like, you know, one undercover here and another undercover there. In Woo Hoo, it's like hundreds of them. You know, they, they, they planted a ton of them. It's a pretty solid movie. Typical high concept from Wong Jing. Exactly. Infernal Affairs, like times 100. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. And he, any spontaneous thoughts on, on the actor that you haven't haven't shared? No, not really. I think you pretty much covered it. Likeable whenever he does appear. You know, you never like yes, that. Uh. Yeah, 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 definitely. Cool. Um, so director Ulysses Ao Young, a.k.a. Tsai Yang Ming, and it's a little repeat of information from prior episodes. You and I have talked of him when we discussed The Country of Beauties. Very colorful, a colorful movie. Elsa Young. Yeah. <laughs> he's very, he is a very, very important director, you know, a very frequent director and also a versatile director. Uh, worth knowing of if you're interested in uh, Taiwanese cinema. He was actually an actor early in his career, uh, but uh, he, he got notes, uh, critical notices for, you know, social realism cinema eventually, you know, and, uh, but he started his career in Taiwan with uh, quality indie productions such as The Prodigal Boxer. And uh, he combined his time in Taiwan with a little bit of Shaw Brothers, um, Shaw Brothers movies. He co-directed Police Force for Chang Che, but mainly stayed in Taiwan uh, as a as a figure in the 70s and 80s, directing acclaimed uh, fair like it was a martial arts drama called uh, "Thou Shalt Not Kill But Once." And it's a pretty pretty solid Chen uh, Chen Sing Michael Chan movie. 
1979, he directed a movie called The First Error Step, which signaled the start of Taiwanese social realism. It was a gangster tale. Uh, and uh, kind of, uh, it's a movie that is available in some prints, but it's when it was shown in, in New York like two years ago, that print was very, very shaky. You know, uh, the sound wasn't uh, complete, for instance. You know, it was a very, very damaged print. And it starred Masha, who starred in, oh, he's in a ton of movies, but I don't know if you remember him from Witch with Flying Head. He's the. Uh, he was the evil sorcerer, wasn't yes, he? Indeed. Yeah. And uh, Tattooer Ma at IFD. His uh, movies were often source movies at IFD, so they called him Tattooer Ma because he's got tattoos and shit. Like, brilliant, creative. <laughs> <laughs> and Ulysses Au dabbled in female revenge movies as well. Uh, movies like Woman Revenger, aka The Nude Body Case in Tokyo. I remember that time they found that nude body in Tokyo. Crazy. The, the nude body case, even. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a case. There's a nude body in it. <laughs> so what's it about again? Uh, anyway. It I has digress. a fantastic poster of Elsa Jung wearing basically nothing at all but a cloth. You know. Uh, <laughs> also kind of a lost movie because it's not available uh, subtitled in most places. So uh, there you go. He did effective swordplay dramas like, uh, as a kind of a crap title, it's called Be Careful Sweetheart, uh, starring Bridget Lin and Derek Yee, as well as Adam Chang. But it's a solid mix of uh, high concept fantasy and, uh, and drama, actually. And uh, in 2001, uh, Ulysses Zhao or Tsai took up the role of executive director for the Taiwan Directors Association to spearhead the development of the Taiwan movie industry. And in uh, recent years, Tsai and his son have been collaborating to produce TV dramas have, 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 and have won great acclaim doing so. So he's uh, still active and he was also invited to the 2013 New York Asian Film Festival to receive a uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, I believe. So he was there and uh, he uh, there was a quote by him, a little bit quote about his career that was posted on the website at the time. So I thought I'd read it out because it was, I thought it was kind of nice. So quote, my film career started when I was the manager of a small theater. Back then I was just a 19 year old kid and embracing the world of cinema every day just made me just made me so filled with joy. After leaving the army, I plunged into the film world, first as a continuity clerk, then becoming a writer, actor, director, and producer. 2013 marks the 50th year since I joined the business, and movies still makes me so excited. Back then, all filmmakers were a big family. Even though I was shooting three movies at the same time with less than three hours of sleep each day, I never complained. In 1969, I started directing Mandarin films. Taiwan was still under martial law. The government banned the freedom of speech with no mercy casting a shadow over the whole film industry. I once finished making a movie with high cost, but one third of the film was cut due to strict censorship. Every inch of the negative that was sliced away was a stab in my heart. Under the harsh circumstances, I still overcame the difficulties and directed more than 70 films in all kinds of genres and style, from wuxia, kung fu, detective, gangster to comedies. I won the Best Screenplay Award at the Asian Film Festival with Never Too Late to Repent, which is an AKA for the first Aerostep, by the way. And uh, that, that was actually, uh, 
uh, written or co-written by Island of Fire director Chu Yanping. He's uh, interviewed in the Taiwan Black Movies documentary talking about uh, writing that movie. Again, to co- uh, continue the quotes, my other works such as Big Land Flying Eagles, Woman Revenger, The Girl, Robert and I, all represented different styles in my line of work. Somebody called me the godfather of Taiwan realistic cinema, but all I wanted to do was to explore the boundaries of Taiwan film genres. With the help of God, I was granted many chances along the way. Looking back at my 50 years of filmmaking in my own country and in Hong Kong, from a continuity clerk to a director, from a teenager to an elder, I've never felt alone. End quote. I like that. Nice. Yeah, I like that too. Like a very positive, uh, positive recap. And judging by, you know, Facebook friends that had a chance to see him at the Q&A and meet him, in his elder years, a pretty cool cat. Cool. Got his health and all of that, so it seemed again anyway. So you know, directors like like him. I mean, the the term workmanlike is often used in a pejorative sense, but these kind of workhorse directors who like him, who just kept at it and made you know dozens and dozens of films. I mean, he maybe he's no King Who, but I, it's those directors that are really the lifeblood of of the Taiwan film industry. You know, so I have a lot of respect for that. And he sounds like a very thoughtful, smart guy. So let's jump into it. Uh, the greatest plot from my side again. I've never seen this movie before. Never knew of it before, really. And uh, my uh, short opinion, obviously not the greatest plot, but rather a generic plot in a not so remarkable film that does bring to life nicely during a few action scenes where weapons design and concepts are executed well. Otherwise, quite ordinary. So that's my short opinion for now. What did you think, Tom? Wow. Harsh. <laughs> it's not really harsh. I didn't hate it. It's like... Uh... Um, I liked it okay. Um, I did want to say one thing about it is that uh, this, this portion of the podcast can be called Todd knows how to use Wikipedia, but uh, <laughs> but uh, this film actually has a lot of historical basis, and the character that Huawa plays, uh, Yang Qing, Yang Qing was an actual emperor during the Manchu Qing dynasty during like the late 17th century, early 18th century, and just as in the film, uh, he was the fourth prince. And also, as in the film, there was some controversy over the order of ascension and whether he was really the next in line for the throne, which led to a lot of bad blood between him and the other princes. And he was also, by some accounts, kind of a bastard, as he is in this movie. He he, he seems to be one of those figures that has, a, you know, a, a, both a historical and a folkloric incarnation, because, uh, you know, for instance... The official cause of his death was that he poisoned himself with an overdose of some kind of elixir of some kind that he thought was going to grant him immortality. It didn't. Uh, but in Chinese folklore, he's said to have been assassinated by one of his sisters, which is a lot closer to the action in this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's certainly um, it, it's not bad at conveying uh that basic uh, storyline, you know what I mean? It's yeah. so uh, they do it quite quick, though, which is uh, not a bad thing. I mean, it's a below 90 minutes movie, so you you get into it quite quick, and it's well costumed. I mean, the the sets the, the sets are you know literally majestic. They look very very good, and it's uh, it 
gives off a royal aura that is, you know, at its, you know, top and that it's, uh, as its lead is a completely like, wicked bastard of a man. You're never really convinced that he is a good man because the movie moves so quickly, like establishes that my brothers and sisters, I will be the emperor. Great. Will you betray us? No. <laughs> you know, next scene. I betrayed you now. Damn you. Revenge. Yeah. It's actually kind of, I thought it was kind of a modern take. You know, even though it's a period film, it, it, it is kind of a modern take on the corrupt politician. He's almost kind of a Nixon-like figure. And, you know, the more he's exposed as being corrupt, the more paranoid he gets. And, you know, just the idea, the story of a politician who rises to power by making all kinds of false promises, you know, like he's like, I guarantee equality between the Manchu and the Qing, you know, and um, and then he just, you know, blows it all off and betrays all his friends. My bottom line about this movie is I think it's well made, you know, another very handsomely made film, definitely a, a class act for the most part. But I think it's a, a film that really gets by more than anything else on its acting. I think there's some really good performances in this movie. I think Yuen Hua is good, and especially Lo Li, I think, oh, is I great in this movie because... You know, as much as I like this, you know, as much as I enjoy Lowly's villain portrayals, I mean, they're classic. I, I, I enjoy when he turns up during the last five minutes of a movie. Think of Little oh, Hero. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I right, love yeah, to exactly. see this movie. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but I also, I really enjoy seeing him play, um, you know, uh, sympathetic characters. And yes. I think the character he plays here is is definitely sympathetic and also his circumstances are there's a lot of poignancy to it because he plays marshal nian who's who's basically the right hand man of rank of yang ching and he's he's loyal to a fault and so much so that when yang ching demotes him and basically banishes him to the hinterlands he goes into denial, you know, how he keeps repeatedly saying, well, you know, this is just all part of the plan. You know, he can't confront it. Um, and he does. a, re And then but finally, when it dawns on him, when he finally realized that he's been abandoned by the king, it's like this extremely dramatic moment. Mm. And that sort of is what proves to be the king's undoing, because it's the. It's the impact of the betrayal upon Marshal Nian that finally prompts, you know, his uh, the enemies of the king to finally take action and and you know raid the take and put the the greatest plot into action. <laughs> I guess that's the greatest plot they're referring to. But I thought. Lowly is fantastic in this he movie. He is. I mean, I I want that much because you summarized it so perfectly. Other than to say that. It can almost be, you know, it can almost smell that there's something a, a little bit more better than the usual low lead appearance because it, it isn't viewable as much on this kind of ropey print that we saw it on, saw it on. But if you see stills of him, he looks fantastic. His costume is great. His facial yes. hair, whether it's his own or not, it just looks like, okay, we're going to not just plant you here for 10 minutes and you can move on to your other movie. You got you got <laughs> yeah. a character here and we're going to costume you supremely well. And he just looks like he's loving the chance at, mm -hmm. for once, a little bit more poignancy to a role, as you said. I think that's a perfect ro uh, word for it. Uh, 
uh, he stood out like a read about. I mean, uh, I, I, I hate to come down on a movie, which I, I really am not. It's just like it doesn't break through overall in an overall sense. But the elements here are quite solid and never, you know, yet another Taiwanese kung fu movie. It's, it's far from that. Yeah. I, I guarantee you that. It's not this tired shot all outdoors in the movie with a lot of painful comedy you know no 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 and, and at this point in the 70s it might as well have been that because kung fu comedy was just around the corner and cheap taiwanese productions were plentiful but they, this uh, they, this seems to have a little bit of budget behind it yeah and it is a serious film yeah i <laughs> i hate the comic relief in these movies so much that but i so when i forget to note that a film doesn't contain any of it I think it's a big oversight. This film, you know, any film from this period that doesn't have the master guy master. in it <laughs> uh, deserves kudos yeah. because I think there was a lot, there seems to have been a lot of pressure to include that guy, yeah. you know, so. Whoever, whoever said master in these movies, <laughs> that's the guy. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> At least, uh, and, and thankfully, this doesn't seem like an Ocean Shores dub or anything. We we saw it dubbed no. in English, and as we talked about before, their dubs were pretty horrible and uh, overdone, and they even modernized names in period movies. Uh, but but thankfully, you know, it's not Emperor Steve or anything. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. you know, you're, I'm not kidding. There is like this. Um, no, I know. There's that film where the guy's name is. Gary. Yeah, yeah, uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah Nine Demons, I think. That's is the, the one. one, like Stephen Gary. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen Gary. <laughs> Admittedly, a fun yeah. movie, but like, it's yeah. a whoosh up, yeah. Like, is Steve coming? Like, <laughs> so there you go. And, but uh, it, it's. It's fast, as I said, you know, it gets us into, into the story quick, and that's not a bad thing, you know. Uh, during the short running time, it's okay to get us into the basic conflict quickly, and as you said, it lands some poignancy, poignancy points along the way. Um, initially, the action doesn't stand out as such. There is some mass fights, you know, with a lot of hits and kicks and slashes that appear competent, but it doesn't stand out. It's just a lot of actors just moving around in the frame. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so that's not a good sign of choreography. Where the good sign of choreography does happen is um, where we see an early um, sparring or training scenes uh, between Yuhua and Lolit. They're training with spears. And yes. I'm weak for the usage of spears in these movies, um, regardless. Uh, and, but I think it's very competently uh, competently made. And, um, you know, Yuhua is very good in the movie, and he doesn't, throughout, uh, thankfully, use, uh, use you know, the maniacally laughing part of a villain act that normally, it happens like once, like in one moment, like, ha, <laughs> yeah. ha, Yeah, it's actually pretty understated. It is pretty understated, and it, it's more about his you know, uh, power tirade and his mm. him being a tyrant and him being being irrational and weak in certain areas. You know, women is a weakness. Well, yeah, and then at the towards the end, he sort of makes a sex slave out of uh, Elsie. Is that Elsie Young that he ends up like imprisoning and? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I, I might sound like a dumbass for saying that. Was she in this movie? <laughs> the print wasn't very good, admittedly, but was she in this movie? <laughs> she she is, yeah, she is in it, but she's, I'm not sure who she played. 
I mean, there are a couple of women in here, but obviously she wasn't like second lead after Shu Feng. Who no. Was there. So I, I wonder where. Uh, I mean, again, the... I may be wrong. Let me let me. I'm looking at the HKMDB. Oh, she is listed. A princess Nian, but whoever she was, I can't remember to be really princess, honest. Princess. So she's yeah, she's way down there. Um, yeah, didn't he? It was the watch. Yes, the princess. She was the wife of one of the of the princes, his rivals, right. and he had her kidnapped, and he was keeping her uh, prisoner, and he and he basically was having his way with her um, in some pretty uh, unpleasant scenes. Uh, but I think that was I think that was Elsie Young. I might be wrong. But they, that, 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 that makes me want to go back, uh, certainly. So, I mean, I, I love, by the way, uh, uh, just a note on actress Xu Feng, which I love. And she, she's in um, A Touch of Zen and The Fate of Lee Khan and various other movies. A friend of mine once told her that, uh, you know, try and catch, it try, told me, try and catch Xu Feng smiling in a film. It never happens <laughs> because she's always very, very stern and uh, and and a very active presence action-wise, but never this. Uh, she has had a role or two where she's been, you know, the damsel in distress and kind of the romantic interest. But I always uh, associate her with uh, King Who, uh, if uh, you know the King Who movies and uh, mm-hmm. being being a uh, you know right-hand woman to uh, to a bad guy or to. Uh, to a team of uh, a team of uh, good characters, if you will. Uh, but but I, I, I love she's in uh, that she's in this, and she uh, she's also a likable presence uh, to me. And and as a revenge piece, it's not this super primal, nuanced revenge movie, but it has a it has an ordinary kung fu template too, and that could work if you execute the commercial elements. Again, it, it is nicely acted; it has some poignancy, but you also naturally remember a lot of the action from this movie and thankfully when Ulysses Au and his action directors are focusing on weapons in this movie you know not not just the spears then it turns rather fun too yeah there's some weird stuff definitely I mean we get uh, shields that are actually flying guillotines you know shields that gods can carry but also use as a flying guillotine and I love that stuff because Taiwan again could execute this, but Taiwanese cinema also was kind of charmingly primal in a way that not only executing this physically, but like how they executed it on the soundtrack as well, because they put these loud soundtracks to to weapons being used. Like when guillotines are uh, thrown, it sounds like an air, like a jet fighter taking off. Yes. Yeah. Or there's those weird science fiction, you know, there's like (laughs) synthesizers or something playing. It's all, it's very odd, but now was this the movie where they had the big swinging logs with all kinds of knives? I love that. That was nice. I mean, it's a big old, yeah, it's it's a big old log that keeps spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. It has uh, knives or swords sticking out of it, but also projectile knives and swords, which is apparently a king, the king's, uh, uh, or the emperor has this weapon in his arsenal. And it's just this big bulky thing that is just marvelously fun to have in a movie. And at one point, a monk, a monk uh, 
tries to uh, assassinate the king and the monk dies eventually and that log keeps uh, spinning uh, he, he's nailed to the wall essentially and that log keeps spinning in place just slicing him and slicing him and slicing him right and, slicing and you're him. just kind of left to imagine what's going on out of you you know it's uh yeah that's yeah it was yeah it was like this big post you know kind of like I, I don't know if it may be like a huge like oak or something like that. But yeah, it's this. And then there were some other things where it was like a number of logs uh, swinging from the ceiling. And those had knives, too. And they were like, you know, uh, two or three of those that you had to make your way through the room. So, we, you know, so we go from a historical drama about an actual, you know, Qing Dynasty emperor to... Fu Manchu with his house of traps and all these, you know, crazy, you know, that was, that kind of reminded me of Ghost Hill with all the crazy traps in the end of that. And I love that stuff. So I was down with that. So that, that's when the movie kind of builds quite well towards an entertaining uh, aura because it's attack after attack that's varied up with uh, different weaponry and high-flying feats and what have you, and it builds nicely towards the finale. And uh, I, I don't have many other notes other than the fact we're going to track back to what our listener said, that he thought this was kind of surreal and eerie, and I was looking at the movie, oh, when is that going to happen? It does happen. Yeah. Eventually, towards the end, there is some possibly uh, supernatural spooky element to it, and it's kind of eerily effective uh, regardless what it is i'm trying to remember what that was it's essentially the reintroduction of lolit during the finale there's a quite an eerie reintroduction oh, of yes. him and yes. there's like wind on the soundtrack garments flowing you know and a voice from somewhere in the palace you know and uh, yuhua's character is spooked at that point uh and it's an effective sequence and an effective little twist yes. to um, to a finale and uh, adds to it's not just characters arriving to the place of the finale, having the five minutes fight and then the end. It has a few elements and uh, uh, wire-assisted action and it's, it's, it's very much decent entertainment. Um, it's not just very... Um, it, it doesn't... It aims to be historically accurate as you established, but it's not hugely concerned with it so it's got the action but also uh, within it i mean maybe it's unexpected that it works so well but again law leads supporting performance is quite excellent and uh, not something you see on a constant basis in these uh, movies especially not in law leads filmography who was a fantastic actor but he worked a lot and therefore he didn't get a lot of material constantly but here here's material man yeah, he's good. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's to uh, the director's credit, too, that he gave uh, Loli that room, you know, to give that performance. So, uh, yeah, this one for me, I, I liked it. Um, I didn't love it. I would say of the two movies, you know, if you watch just one of the films reviewed on Taiwan Noir this episode, I would recommend Night Orchid over this. But I still think this is a... It's a a respectable effort. I was entertained by it. I wasn't wowed by it, but except for Loli's performance and some of the other performances, too. Um, But, you know, it's a worthwhile film. Indeed, absolutely. And as for availability, in my estimation, there's nothing official out there anymore, in a way. 
mostly in circulation before anyway was a cropped uh, from 235 widescreen very wide widescreen to 133 and it was a cropped version and a subtitled version and therefore uh, the subtitles were very much uh, just barely readable you know and uh, and it wasn't in mandarin too so it wasn't it wasn't english dubbed or anything so what we watched there was something i found on the internet uh, recently, a letterboxed English dubbed version of the film that isn't very good quality. I gotta tell you, it's this um, few. Uh, it's a VHS version that's copied at least four or five times. I don't know. Maybe it's more. very. It was very choppy to say the least. But the print they used isn't very um, stable either. There's a lot of jumps um, in yeah. scenes and audio. But, it, I, you know, it's an English-dubbed letterbox version of the film that allowed us to see some of its, uh, you know, design and majestic nature. And we obviously could, you know, conjure up a discussion uh, about the film based on what we saw. It certainly pops yeah. uh, in uh, certain areas. Uh, so if you uh, if you want to see it wide, it's out there on, on the torrent forums. And uh, if you understand uh, Mandarin, then certainly you can watch the cropped version because that is more colorful and definitely more sharper. So you can mm. you can see some of the design in a little bit sharper way. But not a lot of reviews out there on it. And I suspect that it's not a very known film, to be honest. I just thought that kind of automatically, I don't know why, that it was a bit more known, but uh, I think it's one of those that were, um, has been um, kind of buried ever since release because it's not received much of uh, good exposure on home video. So, so we're we're doing our we're doing our bit, I suppose. And this uh, print, uh, whatever it originated from, I don't know, but um, it's uh, it was obviously exported at some point. They made an English dub of it, and it was bought by someone and and uh, shown uh, maybe theatrically at some point in the seventies or eighties. I wonder if it's because, um, I mean, I really like Yoiwa, but uh, he doesn't seem to have the juice of some of the other Hong Kong stars, you know, like where he, you know, he seems like maybe a blander presence than maybe someone like T Lung or some of the other, you know, big martial arts stars. So maybe that's another reason why it doesn't have more a higher profile. I don't know. I think it's a mixture of that and the fact that he wasn't much of a kung fu star. Again, you know, more of a sword play, wuxia pian genre, um, uh, genre attendee, if you will. <laughs> uh, uh, many people, I think, many people were exposed to kung fu more than sword play, and maybe like kung fu more than sword play. Uh, mm. Not looking down on anyone's views, but I think. Uh, that, that that's just an easier sell, I suppose. And again, exposure, despite being in classics, wasn't um, wasn't as high, I think, on home video across the world. Uh, right. Yeah. But but he he earns his rep, obviously. He's a he's a more than solid actor and uh, also welcome presence uh, in these movies. So. Yeah. yeah. Even did a movie for Godfrey Hope, actually one of Godfrey wow. Hope's actual movies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, really? He wow. made a Girls with Guns movie called Princess Madam with uh, Moon Lee and uh, Sharon Young. And uh, Yu Hua was this uh, barking villain in that one. He just barked <laughs> off at him. He was mad all the time. Uh, uh-huh. But it was good. It was good. Uh, so there you go. Uh, there's nothing announced for next time because at the time of recording, we're nearly into November. And uh, rounding off the year soon. Obviously, the year will end pretty quickly. It always seems to do. Uh, to, to end quickly, so it'll be 
in terms of terms of me making sure some Christmas specials happen, we normally try and produce two. But Taiwan Noir obviously will be back, even if it is early 2015. But we'll uh, we'll announce uh, we'll announce it on the Facebook group and what have you. What we're doing next, so expect more mad genre fair, important genre fair, in my estimation anyway. And maybe even we'll cover some major classics for once. I mean, uh, I wouldn't be opposed to actually talking a touch of Zen. Uh, it'll be a challenge, and I, I like a touch of Zen a whole lot. Uh, uh, but it requires focus, I think. I want to do it, yeah, you know, justice if I can. But uh, when all is said and done, I always watch movies. I make my notes, and uh, whatever happens, happens. It never becomes like, uh, movie good, uh, <laughs> pretty cool. You know, it's never yeah. it's never basic like that. I, we we always bring something to the table. It's pretty yeah. good. It's long. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, so it would be an interesting Taiwan or like an April Fool's Taiwan or oh, like, right, uh, exactly. five minutes yeah. long. What do you think, Todd? It's good, yeah. bro. I don't know. It was like I I didn't understand what those people were saying at all, man. It's like what language was that? <laughs> <laughs> Reading movies. Yeah, so oh, I wanted to read. I'll go to the library. Well, how do you pronounce it? Library. 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 I think is how it's pronounced. But uh, regardless, uh, you know, on a personal note, Taiwan or is a delight to do for me, and it's a delight to share, you know, with listeners and certainly with you, Todd. And even if I'm oh, the only, for me. really like the work you've been doing this year for us, you know, uh, seven or eight episodes in. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Even if I'm the only one who delights in the fact that a show on these movies is out there, mm. that's kind of enough. You know, if I, it starts with me as a producer and it starts with us as co-hosts. If we, if we like it, you know, the ripples that we possibly create or a welcome bonus and uh, it's uh, I, I really care about if there's multiple multiple comments on the Facebook group and download numbers I just enjoy the fact that we have the opportunity to share our thoughts and context about movies and an industry that is currently not as far as I know covered in the podcast world and if we can't do it and enjoy doing it then it's very much worthwhile as a like a passion project and creative project it's yeah. um, and I think it is meaningful to people. I mean, it may not. I mean, I said this to people who asked me why I wrote the book about um, Indian action movies of the 70s, which is definitely a niche of a niche. And uh, I just say, you know, there may not be a huge audience for this, but the people who are, to the people who are interested in this, it will be extremely meaningful. You yes. know, they'll be very happy that this exists, just as I am when I find, you know, something, someone's written something about, you know, some obscure genre that I'm really into. You know, there's this, like, thrill of discovery. I want to give that to, you know, even if it's just several of you out there, I want to give that to, to you. So hopefully I think that people get a lot out of this, I'm sure. Yeah, it's very well put. I think it's um, it's it's how I feel too about uh, regardless of the show I do on this network. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'll admit that this is one of my favorite ones to put out there and and do. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I can show my hand. You know what the favorite one for me is to do on this network? It's actually the Korean one because 
that's like almost 90% discovery for me. You know, I've seen so few Korean movies and these having, you know, Paul Quinn and Rufus Durham on these shows who know so much about, you know, modern Korean movies and uh, Golden Age, they, you know, educate me and it's so much fun to discover, you know, being a movie fan for so many years that you can still kind of get giddy about discovering is yeah. is a goddamn good confirmation that the cinema still holds magic, you know what I mean, regardless of if we're talking Taiwanese mad fantasy or Korean golden age, you know, point of drama or whatever. It's a good mixture and I hope to have you on uh, during 2015 as well and uh, it works out, us doing it sporadically, it works out with our respective schedules because you're a busy man, I'm a busy man, and um, you're a writer. And uh, uh, Are you going on a, on a nationwide book tour in 2015? <laughs> uh, I'll find out. I'll find out what kind of a promotional budget Fab Press has. Yeah. I'm hoping they have some we, kind We'll of give a... you a tricycle and you can go to various bookstores by your own. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, maybe, uh, yeah. Or, uh, you know, maybe I'll start a Kickstarter or something like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm hoping they have some kind of a launch event in, in England so I can go over there. Maybe not on their time, but, you know, I'd head over there for that. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, But uh, I definitely, you know, I am busy, but I definitely plan to include Taiwan Noir in in the future. So I I definitely hope I'll be included next year. We'll see after I summarize 2014, like, who did good this year? Like, hmm, did Todd do good? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Right. Yes, you are a cruel taskmaster. Dictator of this network. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Didn't make the cut. Oh, well. <laughs> well. I'm still an author, so screw you, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. Uh, but uh, again, thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, regardless, if we come back for an, another episode in 2014, uh, it's always a good time to say that we what we uh, that we enjoy doing this and enjoy the feedback that we do uh, get. And uh, that uh, it's, uh, it's not a chore to do this. It's a lot of fun. No. It, yeah, it's a blast. So uh, let's uh, round this off then. Uh, this has been Taiwan Noir on the Podcast on Fire Network. Our website, podcastonfire.com. This show and the bonus episodes are on there. Email podcastonfire at googlemail.com. Like our page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash POF Network. Join the discussion group through the link on that page or type in Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search bar. Our Twitter, twitter.com forward slash podcastonfire. My writing of... Taiwanese movies, ninja exploitation, and category free and various other genres at sogoodreviews.com and I video review at sleazykvideo.com and tweet at twitter.com forward slash sogoodreviews. We are on iTunes, Taiwan Noir, that is. And if you like us, please subscribe and rate and even leave a written comment if you have the time. A small one or two sentences will do and act perfectly fine as a review. And stream us on Stitcher Radio through their online presence. But obviously, you can download the free application for your iPhone, iPad, or any iTouch device, and the Android as well. And once you're in Stitcher, type in Taiwan War to find us and add us to your favorite lists. And finally, Jesus Perez Molina's blog, Golden Ninja Warrior Chronicles, and specifically his Taiwan Black Movies posts, I've linked to. Jesus is uh, writing, and I think he's completed a book on IFD. You know, one of the first, wow. I think, dedicated books on IFD. Unfortunately, at this point, it, not unfortunately, it's just uh, the way it is. It, it'll be in Spanish only, and uh, maybe a translation will come out in, at some point. But he, he's, he's probably like uh, recent, just like you did, that there, you know, there might, there, this might be niche, 
but it's worth doing, at least trying. Yes. And uh, and you both did it, you know, and that's inspiring work, my friend. So uh, good on you, Todd, and good on you, Jesus, for for uh, you know, you know, t- taking that passion to that level, you know. I couldn't not. So uh, you know, four word by Todd Statman. I hate Godfrey Ho. I hate Godfrey Ho. I hate Godfrey Ho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I had written a book about Godfrey Ho, that would have been impressive. And and if I had written a book about Godfrey Ho in Spanish, well, I. That would have been very impressive indeed. Right on. Go go ahead and plug whatever you want to plug. Just come check check me out on my blog, die danger die die kill dot dot com. And as I said up top, uh, yeah, uh, if you look over on the right there, you'll see links to the Facebook page. You go to Facebook page, to Facebook and give us a like. Um, whenever there's a new Taiwan Noir, I always put a, look, a link up on the Facebook page, so that's a good way to keep track of all my extracurriculars. Um, check out the Pop Offensive radio show on ninthfloorradio.com. That's going to be happening on November 5th at 7 p.m. Pacific, two hours of awesome international pop dance and film music and this will drive ken crazy um if you if you live in the bay area and you want to hear me sing i will be performing at a place called oh geez i can't remember what it's called uh, something it's called ne- neck of the woods it's on clement street uh on november 13th uh the show starts at eight so and i'm working on that ebola cure as we speak so <laughs> Well, well, that that'll be more relevant. You know, I'm sorry to say, but possibly this show will come out after your gig. But why would it drive me crazy? You know, good on you, man. You know, I, I've heard oh, you. Oh, just because I'm like I'm, I'm constantly <laughs> coming up with more side projects. It's kind <laughs> no, of, no, no. I'm I'm, I'm a. You know, I wish I could be that busy and that talented. You know, seriously. So, and I've heard your music. You're a good musician, man. So, you know, I'll well, go. thank you. You know, money changing hands under the table as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> That's the nice thing about this Fab Press thing. It's the first time someone has actually thrown some money behind uh, a creative endeavor of mine. And it actually means something. It's not like that it's about money at all, but there's, you know, there is a little bit of validation to it. So I'll admit wouldn't, it. Wouldn't a good idea for a book launching event be to screen a movie as well? Or, or are you planning to do something I can't do? I think so. That was, well, originally we were going to do the uh, launch at a at a video store here in San Francisco called Lost Weekend. And they have a, a theater in their basement. And we were basically going to, we were probably going to do a series of movie screenings in connection with the book release, but for the release party, we were going to show a bunch of different uh, musical numbers from a bunch of different 70s Bollywood movies. That was what was going to happen. Maybe we can still do that uh, next year when that happens. But anyway, I'm sure people are really sick of hearing us talk now. You gotta create, uh, you get, you gotta get the hashtag going too, like Funky Bollywood, like on Twitter, so. Yeah, absolutely. It'll happen. Right you on. know, you know, I'm not gonna slack on <laughs> this. Back down for a bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the last thing I do. All right, Tom. Uh, but okay, we are done for Taiwan or 16. Can't believe it's been 16 episodes in total already, and I think you've done uh, six or eight or something like that, so. But yeah, it's, I'm not it's, sure. 
It'll be it'll be an ongoing thing, people. So plenty of time in the cinema to explore. So thank you for listening. And uh, I've been Kenny B. And with me was Todd, Funky Bollywood Statman. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. Or how many, uh, however many of you there may be. At least Andrew in California. Or at least Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Andrew. <laughs>